Hey, it's Andrew. Today on the show, we have Ryan Bonici, one of the world's most influential CMOs as named by Forbes, currently leading the marketing team at G2. In this episode, we talked about Ryan's responsibilities as a CMO at G2, how he and his team split their focus, and how G2's product team mirrors their marketing team's structure. We also discussed G2's buyer intent and how it arms companies to predict churn, how their retention team measures success, and how they guide their free users into their paid funnel. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. These, these different- you don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for listeners. Uh, Ryan is the CMO of G2, a community of over 5 million monthly buyers where users submit reviews on business solutions to help professionals make more informed purchase decisions. Uh, Forbes also rated him as one of the most influential CEOs of 2019. And prior to G2, Ryan was the Senior Director of Global Marketing at HubSpot and served as the Head of Marketing for the Asia-Pacific region at Salesforce. Uh, so my first question for you, Ryan, is like, what are you responsible for as a CMO? What does your day-to-day look like? So what am I responsible for at G2? So <clears throat> it's a little different from other marketing roles and probably from other CMOs because you know, we obviously have a few different sides of our business and we're a marketplace, right? So I'm responsible for attracting buyers to our site. So if you think of kind of G2, right? Yeah, you mentioned we have 5 million monthly buyers. We then have around 100,000 sellers on our site. Um, And those 100,000 sellers have maybe around 150,000 products listed on our site. Um, And so it's my job to attract buyers to attract sellers and to connect buyers with sellers. Um, So it's kind of multifaceted and really complex because what attracts buyers is our review content. So, you know, I guess the currency of G2.com is essentially the fact that we have more reviews than any other review site out there. And we, and, and we don't just have more in the volume sense. We have a lot more depth to our reviews, right? So an average review on G2 takes, you know, anywhere from seven to 10 minutes. So, so I'm responsible for getting um, buyers to our site. I'm responsible for a good portion of the sales pipeline for sellers. And then I'm also responsible for driving all the reviews on our site. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely one of the most, um, 
enjoyable jobs I've ever had in my career, but also one of the most challenging because in in double, we're, we're, it's kind of even more complex than a double-sided marketplace, but in marketplaces, there are so many levers at play at any point in time. Um, and it's definitely been the role that I've had to work most closely with product. You know, if I think of when I was, when you know, the marketing team at HubSpot doesn't really have to work very closely with product. Obviously they do, and they share a ton of feedback on, you know, what's happening in the marketing world because our product is building products for marketers. So naturally, you yeah. know, a really good person to connect with. Um, the product is so central to everything that my team is responsible for. And we're the ones that are responsible for the numbers. So the traffic number sits on me, the review number sits on me, and then, you know, a portion of the revenue number sits on me. So, um, yeah, I guess based on that, that's sort of what, what the role looks like. My day-to-day, I wish I could tell you, Andrew. (laughs) 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 It's different all the time. Um, you know, I think now I've got a, I've got a really great team. I'm really fortunate. So now I think my day looks quite different to what it looked like in the past. Now I spend most of my time working really closely with my team, trying to, you know, move away roadblocks that are stopping them from, you know, reaching their own goals um, and being their cheerleader ultimately. So I'd say like there's a good portion of my time is spent really working closely with my team and supporting them. Yeah. Um, as well as obviously finding new people to join to the team as well. It's something I'm really passionate about. Um, I'd say the other big portion of my time is working with our leadership team at G2. And I almost think that you know, my number one and first team is team. Um, and so I, I almost view them as the team that I need to spend most of my time with. And then I view the marketing team as my second team. Because at the end of the day, if the leadership isn't aligned and if we're not all giving each other enough attention and focusing on the things that we all need, you know, none of us will achieve what we want to achieve. Absolutely. And I think as well, uh, even more so, like you touched on the point of it's like a marketplace, but even a little bit more complicated. You have, in, in some ways, like sort of three sets of customer segments to satisfy and uh, marketing to those segments as well, I think must be a challenge. Um, I think also like part of this as well, like uh, when we think about the context of churn and retention, um, it's definitely one of uh, the harder places to be as in a marketplace is because mm. I think early days until you get sort of that tipping point and uh, it fuels the, each side fuels one another, it is really like that chicken and egg sort of scenario trying to keep uh, pushing backwards and forwards on the, the side. So uh in your role, like at the moment, like how do you balance between the attraction between both sides? Like, uh, do you see sort of a point in time where you need to shift energy and for a quarter just like try getting buyers and then for another quarter try get reviewers? Or is it really like spread throughout and you have a good uh, pace now where you're acquiring on both ends? Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably worth stating that I was really fortunate in that when I joined G2, we were way past the chicken or the egg issue, right? Yeah. We already had you know, I think right now we're at about 1.2 million reviews. When I joined, I want to say we had at least 500,000. So we were well on our way there. We were generating probably a million visitors a month. So we've taken the visitors from about a million a month to now 6 million a month. Um, And obviously we've taken reviews from about 500,000 to 1.2 million. Um, I think one of the things that I set up kind of early on was I just have very distinct teams for very distinct goals. So you know, there's essentially four core teams within my team. So I have a team that's very focused on attracting buyers. um, And that team's made up of content marketers. It's made up of search engine optimization folks that not only do on-site optimizations of our website as well as content, but they also do off-site optimizations through link building. 
Um, so that's sort of my buyer team. They're focused and they're totally compensated on attracting more and more buyers to our site. Um, then I have a separate team again, which is really focused on reviewers. So getting more and more reviews on our site. And what's interesting about reviews in our world, which is kind of different from a Yelp or different from consumer review sites like Trustpilot, is that, <coughs> excuse me, um, the big difference is essentially that software is changing all the time, right? Like, and I don't mean as an industry, I literally mean like the software. tools themselves are changing, right? So like, you know, you and I are using Zoom for this call right now. On a weekly basis, Zoom is changing and a feature that might have bothered people two months ago may not bother people anymore. Um, and so that's just so fundamentally different about, about the B2B software review space, which is why it takes so long to leave a, a B2B software review because you're, you're really getting into the details when you're reviewing something. And the reason why I share that is, is because, you know, we don't care just about net new reviews, but we care about like the freshness of reviews. And so if someone comes back to our site, we're not only trying to get them to leave more reviews, we're trying to get them to update their previous reviews because um, that is factored and weighted differently in our algorithm as well. So yeah. I have like that set team focused on generating reviews. And then I have a, a third team that's focused on building the seller side of the marketplace. So this is your more traditional enterprise B2B marketing team, which is essentially kind of what we would have had at HubSpot and at Salesforce. So a team focused on generating leads that convert to MQLs, MQLs that convert to sales opportunity and opportunities that convert to marketing source pipeline. Um, and so that's pretty traditional in that we have field marketing, we have events, we have digital campaigns. Um, it, again, pretty traditional sort of B2B SaaS marketing team. And then that's the third team, I think. And then the fourth team is we have them brand marketing, product marketing, and an internal creative agency at G2. Um, and so for those first three teams, I guess, what's really nice about them is because they're distinct and they have distinct goals. It's less about needing to do scrums or sprints on whatever the focus is right now. Yeah. Um, they're always, always focusing on their area. Um, but we at times will obviously, you know, adjust their focus in terms of different things. Um, so as an example, you know, um, and since we went into quarantine, we just started to see managers of traffic and buyers to our site for software categories that were fundamental to allowing businesses to work from home. So, yep. you know, categories like video conferencing and collaboration and productivity um, all boomed. And so naturally when they were booming, we then did sales campaigns on the back end to make sure that sellers in those categories knew that we have more buyers than ever before to try and convert those folks into revenue faster. On the flip side though, because we had all these new buyers coming to our site, we were generating lots more organic free reviews for those same categories because people were typically swapping from maybe a tool that they no longer liked, but now they had to rely on and they wanted to move across to another tool that they preferred like Zoom, like what we're using right now. Yeah. And so naturally when we see these sorts of environmental shifts, then we start to focus our reviews a bit differently. So, you know, at that point in time, my team stopped doing anything proactively to generate reviews for those categories because they were already generating enough of their own reviews Maybe. so yeah i guess we, we're kind of like always pivoting and learning and i think we, we ultimately are at a point right now where we think of all these different goals as, as a bit of a category model so we kind of view it as like our our leading indicators for success are essentially reviews so reviews is the currency 
Um, reviews help us generate UGC, which helps us drive traffic. Once we have traffic from buyers, then it makes it easier for us to attract sellers and sellers naturally are coming there because they start to see their reviews. And so at that point in time, then we then try and get the sales team involved. So we've built this really amazing model in the last maybe six months. that's based on a, on a whole lot of data, way too smart for me to totally understand. I'm lucky. I have really smart data people that I work with. Um, but it basically kind of looks at like, what are the tipping points for each of these categories where a category moves from like nice to have to must have. Yeah. Um, because once we, you know, own the majority of share of voice for a certain category, let's say CRM software, then, you know, more buyers are coming to that category because we're ranking number one for all of those terms. And because we're ranking for all those terms, more sellers are coming to our site. So um, yeah, it's kind of like an interesting sort of evolution for our model. Yeah, so you've got a, a few different like loops playing into one another uh, that sort of fuel the growth. It, it's interesting as well, definitely like how you've aligned the team to the specific goal and focus. Um, and was that something like recent, like you said, in the last six months, or it's something that's been in place for quite a while? It's something that's actually been in place for quite a while. The bigger difference was that they didn't all live in marketing. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, I think of our marketing team as a bit more of like a growth team, to be honest. I think if you look at what we're doing, of a small part of it is traditional marketing. And the majority of it is is really growth marketing, growth, essentially. Yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah, when I joined G2, gosh, um, SEO lived in product, content marketing lived in a, another team called Research. Um, review generation also lived in research because that was the team that basically was building the algorithm for our website, which was based off of the review. So naturally just kind of started there. And it wasn't until we, we'd already moved a few of those teams into marketing when I joined. Um, and it wasn't really until um, the start of this year where we moved our review generation team into marketing as well. So now essentially marketing or growth owns all of like the, the marketplace levers except for sales. And obviously we drive, you know, a good portion of marketing source revenue, but we're essentially, you know, throwing that over the fence to the sales team. And then we're naturally looking at how that converts into revenue and what the retention looks like of said revenue. Nice. Uh, and then, so you mentioned as well in the beginning, you operate very closely with product uh, within these squads and they operate similar to sort of like a growth team. Do you actually have engineers and PMs within them or is this like, uh, part where like your team would maybe collaborate with product to get something uh, to change in product. How does the relationship work there? Yeah. So we product really nicely mirrors my team. Okay. So in the same way that I have my growth squad set up, um, product has their PMs and their engineering squads set up in a really similar way. So my squads essentially have counterparts on the product squads and they work really closely together. Nice. It's actually very similar so, set up. At so, yeah, so it's not like they they own the outcome necessarily. Like they don't control what the PM. Well, actually, they do control a good portion of what the product teams are driving for their squads. I would probably say around fifty percent of the product squads' goals and priorities. Well, actually, their their goals entirely are aligned to ours because we're not really necessarily setting the high level outcome, right? The company is, but yeah. I would say the actual actions typically maybe like a quarter to fifty what the product squads are working on is directly anything. So, you know, an example would be, um, 
you know, my team that owns review generation naturally, you know, needs a review form, right? And um, the my reviews team really cares, obviously, about the efficiency of that form, because if we can make it more efficient, then that will mean more reviews in the long term, but the actual right. form itself lives in product. And so, you know, any iterations that come to that part of our product are, are completely driven by my team. Um, similarly, even on, um, on like, the, if I think of like, we have a seller squad, um, that's so on my side, the seller squad is that B2B SaaS, you know, traditional marketing team. And on the product side, it's the team that owns the back end of G2.com, which is, and when I say back end, it's called my G2. It's essentially what all of our customers and unpaid customers log into when they okay. want to reply to their reviews on their profile, or if they want to connect, um, their buyer and the buyer intent data that comes from G2, a lot of our customers now connect that up to their CRM so that they can proactively predict which customer are going to churn based on our intent data. Um, so my team really works really closely with product and given my team is also the buyer of that technology, they're all SaaS marketers, they're really closely aligned to that team and helping the product team better understand how does MarTech look and feel? How does sales tech look and feel? How should we you know, visualize dashboards within our product so that it aligns to the way that we know marketers and salespeople think? Nice. Can we rewind just a little bit what you said as well? Because I found that sure. super interesting was the um, how the product can be used uh, for companies to be able to predict and get signals on if someone's likely to churn. Like, uh, how does that work exactly? What are you doing behind the scenes for companies? Yeah, sure. It's a really cool part of our product. And what I love actually about it so much is that it was driven by our customers. So we released about, it was, it was around the time I joined, we released a product that was called Buyer Intent. And Buyer Intent essentially, right? So I mentioned before, we have, you know, millions and millions of buyers coming to the site. We have millions of reviews. We know a lot about the people that are coming to our site. We also know what their stacks look like, which is really interesting, right? So we, we know what tech HubSpot uses. We know what tech Zoom as a company uses. Um, and so when people from those companies come to our site, they have to log in via LinkedIn or with a company email address. Yeah. So we know we have this crazy graph of around, or like identity graph around what a company uses. And that company could be a buyer and a seller or both, right? Yeah. You know, you, you know, work, you're, you're an employee at Hotjar. I'm an employee at G2. You know, we both have a SaaS component of our business, but we use SaaS as users, right? You know, yeah. we mentioned we're using Zoom right now. So we just, we, we realized that we had so much data on companies. And so we started to like look at, okay, how can we start to, I guess, anonymize this data to a certain degree so there's no personally identifiable information, but how could we then sell that to sellers that want to learn about who is looking at their products, who is comparing Hotjar to, you know, one of your competitors. Um, and so we created this product as a, um, as a way for sales teams and BDR teams to be able to, instead of buying lead lists, like email lists, that's so old school, right? Like there's no indication that any of those companies want to buy your software other than they just fit the segment of who you sell to. We offer them a more real-time version, which is buyer intent, which is literally companies looking at software like yours or literally your software. And part of sort of the innovation of how that came about is we have a free product that we give to anyone that creates a seller account on our site and it's our cookie. And so you can put our cookie on your website and that helps us show you how much of your traffic that's coming direct to your site from social referral links, organic, how much of it was on G2 before it was on your site. 
Because what we started to see was that, you know, lots of companies were finding the companies that they were going to buy from, from our site first. And so we wanted to show the attribution of like, hey, you don't realize because, you know, a small portion of those people might directly be clicking through from G2 to zoom.us. Yeah. Um, but they're coming to our site first. They're searching for video conferencing. They're building their shortlist. And then maybe in a week's time, they're coming to your site when they're ready to buy. So we had that product. And then we basically realized, hey, like, let's take that to the next level and actually help these sales teams and BDR teams really focus their energy. And what was really interesting was that we started to hear from some of our really kind of advanced customers, companies like Drift and HubSpot and IBM and Salesforce that, that use our buyer intent tool. They were saying, hey, um, just wanted to let you know, you know, we're kind of using your, we're using your tool for how it's intended, but we've also found a really cool use case. So because they have it synced with their CRM, whether that's Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever they're using, um, they can then build filters that say, if this person is a customer and that customer has bought our product in this category. So let's maybe use Salesforce as the example. They could set up a, a rule that says, if a customer is on G2 and owns our CRM product and now is looking at the CRM category grid on G2.com, that is a big red flag that they yeah. aren't getting the value out of the CRM product that we sold them. So our, our most advanced customers are now building those intent signals into their own customer happiness index or their, their own churn predictor models to then start to have not only you know, usage data, because usage data is great and all. And obviously, if someone's not using your product, right, they're eventually going to churn, yeah. um, most likely. But um, there's obviously that doesn't tell you the whole story, right? And if when you actually see them going out and shopping around and comparing and looking at features and comparing your features to someone else, that's like a really, really clear signal that, whoa, churn is on the horizon. Like, get on top of that now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was that's kind of where that came essentially. Very nice. Yeah, because definitely, like you say, I think. Churn is obviously a lagging metric and uh, you you can look at things like usage, but that only tells half the story because ultimately you can still be ups, like not happy with the product and uh, continue to use it because you're stuck basically. So Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, the, also th the other part of it is like <clears throat> someone might, you know, we use, I won't say any, any names necessarily, but you know, we used a few different a few different um, knowledge-based pieces of software recently. We were using some overlapping software and um and I never logged into one of these tools, but I loved it, right? And so, yeah. you know, I think if you were that customer, you could think, hey, wow, the decision maker for this tool isn't logging in. This is a bad sign. In fact, it wasn't a bad sign. It's just, it's, it's not part of like my job really to be getting into the weeds in that tool. My team is creating all that documentation and sharing that with, <laughs> with sales. But typically when I'm reviewing that content, I'm reviewing it in Google Docs before it ever gets to the knowledge base. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So. So that's really interesting. The, the other kind of cool thing that came out of all of this that we started to realize was we acquired a company about a year ago called Siftery. And Siftery um, was similar to G2, but they had this really amazing product called, um, actually, I forget what it was called now. Now it's called G2 Track. And it, it basically allows you to track all of your software spend as a company. Um, and so we were using a few different pieces of overlapping technology recently yeah. Um, and we were coming up to a renewal. So G2 track, it's a free tool that has a, a paid component if people want to use it. Um, but it basically allows you, it's got this feature called pulse surveys. So when a renewal is coming out, coming up, 
um, track automatically reads your contract and will like work out if it's an auto renewal or if, um, if it's not. And based on the time period of renewal, it will send a survey out to all the users of the tool and it'll ask them how they find the tool. And so we were getting really close to like renew on this piece of software. One of the two knowledge bases that I mentioned, um, and naturally, right with everything going on in the economy right now, our finance team is like, Hey guys, like if there's ever any software that you can consolidate, like YOLO, like now is the time to consolidate. Um, and so I was like, yep, like we're going to renew, like the team loves this software. I love this software. And then I looked at the pulse survey data, my IT guy sent it and, it was horrible. Sales, who was the main user of this tool, wasn't using it and they were using the other piece of tool. Um, and so that just was a really kind of objective way for us to work out like, okay, like we are now in fact going to churn from one of these tools and it was our own tool that kind of helped us realize that, which was really interesting. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Because uh, I think as well, like interesting, it's come up on the show question a few times, I think is how many, uh, how much of like, uh, customers that companies have in SaaS business is actually dormant where nobody's really using the tool, but you just keep paying it. And like you said, like in this case, like making assumptions that you were loving the tool and everyone's using it, but ultimately it's, you know, deriving the value from it. I think it's definitely a missing stat in the market to try and understand like what percentage of products are being paid for, but not being used. I think yeah, absolutely. People will be frightened when they actually. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm a massive fan of like Slack's model, right? It's based off of usage. And so they look yeah. at your average number of users and then stop charging, you know, based on that. And, and that doesn't work for all businesses, I guess. But um, I, I personally, as a buyer and as a user, I think that's just the most humane and the most honest way. It's also great because it incentivizes the whole team around creating a really great product that people want to yeah. use. As Yeah, absolutely. I think actually it was uh, Netflix recently as well. Not to the same degree that Slack is uh, genuine and uh, straight up, but they also, I think now they automatically cancel your subscription if you haven't logged in for a year. Um, oh, wow. And they want to make sure that you're actually using the product. Uh, I think like more and more companies maybe moving in this direction as well is really aligning that like the payment with the value. Um, and yeah. if you're not getting value out of the products, don't pay us for it. And I think like with that, you build trust and transparency. But at the same time, it's you, one of those catch-22 scenarios where you, you want to yeah. use that as to fuel the growth as well and get to the point totally. where you can do this as well. So. And I would say it's not just like trust and transparency, but I think internally it builds predictability for your business, right? And your own revenue, because if you're relying on unpredictable revenue like that, that is going to churn because they're not getting value, like um, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure or you're setting yourself up to miss your goals in the future. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and definitely, I think it's one of those things, even with COVID where uh, it sort of accelerated the inevitable. So like in your case, like you were probably going to churn from that product at some point, but mm. uh, when COVID came around, it just, you sort of like, had this wake up call, we're not using it, let's get rid of it. So uh, yeah. it's scenarios like this, so unpredictable that sort of uh, might, you wake up one day and then you have a big hole in your business and <laughs> wonder where everyone's yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, so the, the next thing as well, you mentioned as well from the perspective of your team, uh, the one that operates a little bit more on enterprise sort of side of things with sales and uh, delivering leads to sales and QLs. And uh, one of those goals is retention, you mentioned, I think, uh, for this team. Uh, how do you go about sort of setting these targets for the team? What are the actual goals that you have in mind when you're driving leads through uh, the door for them? Yeah. So, I mean, that's certainly something that we've really focused on more recently, if I'm fully honest. And I think part of that is because we have, we have quite a, uh, 
depending on our segment, we have a longer sales cycle for our enterprise segments. And, um, and so I think, you know, it took us a bit of time to get enough data and enough and enough leads and then MQLs and then opportunities and then customers to start to really refine, I guess, our, our lead scoring and our account scoring and just how we think about, you know, what is the best fit lead for us in the future. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I think we're still, you know, very early on in the journey of, but for us, really what it comes down to is looking at, um, ultimately who are the people that are coming through the funnel. And when, you know, we look back at, you know, 12 months time and, you know, 24 months time, we start to see, you know, which of those different sources, which of those different segments are actually retaining and becoming high users of the platform. Um, and so, I'd say early on, my team was really much more compensated on driving just a net new pipeline for the business. Um, and now as, you know, as revenue has grown significantly, you know, it's not just important for us to drive net new revenue, but also to make sure that that revenue that we're generating actually retains. And so, you know, long-term revenue is really how I think about measuring that team's success. Um, there's a few other things that we look at. So I'd say like the revenue, you know, is the lagging metric, right? We, that team's really responsible for making sure that people are getting usage and high, high quality usage out of the tools, whether they're a customer or not. So, um, I kind of think of it as like our freemium, it's not technically, yeah, I guess technically it is a freemium funnel. So we, you know, you can, you can be a seller on G2.com. You can come, you can claim your profile. You don't have to pay G2 for anything. You can update your logo, your description, you can respond to reviews. Um, and so, we have a lot of free customers, right, that are using the platform and aren't paying. And so um, it's my team's job. And this is where it kind of like overlaps with product in some senses. But we're really lucky that our product team allows my marketing team to install lots of apps on the back end of our tools so that we can control the in-app experience to drive CTAs and upsells and cross-sells. Um, but it's important, I guess, to get my team thinking about like what are the different aspects of the map that is our seller product and how do we make sure that, you know, a freemium user of our tool is, you know, using all of the free components and then how do we get them to try out some of the paid components? Um, and we've done a bunch of testing around, you know, do we give them 100% of the free product for a month or do we give them unlimited access to the product but in a limited capacity? Um, and we've found so far that the limited capacity example works better, um, because it, it allows them to not just get that for a short period of time. And I find what happens in a lot of those 30 day trials, when you're a premium to kind of free, premium to premium upgrade is if something happens in that user's life and they're busy and another project take they they run out of time in that project and then they don't actually get to use the full value so we actually have found that giving them like the product for free indefinitely but only like but limiting the amount of data they can get so we give buyer intent away for free but we only give i think you know a handful of companies every day so if you want to keep accessing that tool and getting value of it out of it you have to keep coming back and every time you come back you see a big fat cta that says like hey upgrade for unlimited access syncing it to your crm and so that team's kind of much more responsible than for those leading engagement metrics within the tool, even if they're an unpaid user. And then they would try and push them from an unpaid user into our paid funnel, whereby they would raise their hand and schedule time with a salesperson and then move through the traditional sales funnel. 
Nice. It definitely sounds as well like you're operating very much like a growth team with all the different initiatives that you got going on and working towards uh, overall. I, I think you reminded me as well of a really interesting episode I think we had with Jana Basto from Prodpad, where they also started out with a 30-day trial. Um, mm-hmm. And then they said, why do we have 30 days? Like, let's shorten it. They cut it to 15 and they found conversion increased. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they said, well, what happens if we cut it even further? And they cut it, I think, to seven days and conversion increased. And then it was sort of diminishing returns. But then what they did on the flip side of that was exactly like, as you said, like people are busy. They don't always have time to take advantage of a trial. But what they did was if you had taken key actions within the app, they'd extend the trial for X amount of mm. days. So depending on those actions they wanted to drive and get the users to use, they were giving them more an extension. Love that. Like Love that. that. Yeah. And uh, it's probably one of the best onboarding like sort of uh, stories I've heard so far on the show and uh, definitely like see much success for them. So yeah. Uh, but it's using like onboarding to drive those core actions that you want to see and mm. ultimately taking them to those upsell paths and uh, becoming customer. Um, cool. So I have a question that I ask everyone that joins the show. Uh, I want to ask you as well, obviously. So let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. Um, you join a new company, you arrive at this company, churn and retention is not doing great. And uh, the CEO wants to try to turn things around. He's given a time frame of three months to sort of see some results. Um, and he's asked you to, to take this challenge on. What would you want to be doing in these first 90 days to try and turn things around for the company? I mean, I, I love data. So I think for me, the first and most important thing I would be doing is diving into everything that they have data on and better understanding what the funnels look like today. Um, I think that alongside doing that, because I think that will help me, that'll help support my arguments. I think separate to that, though, it's like actually using the tool. And I think, you know, if you have been hired to do that job, you probably know what a good user experience looks like on a website. You probably know what a good onboarding experience looks like. You know what a good offboarding experience looks like. And so I would be digging deep into kind of my own experience there as well as looking at all of the competitors in the space. I'm like a massive fan of not reinventing the wheel. I think too many people try and like, focus on the data and then dream up all the big ideas. And actually like some of the easiest things to do is actually just go out to all of the companies that are in a similar space to yours. How do they, you know, create a really engaging experience, right? So like one of the things that when I took this on at G2, one of the things that I did really quickly was I went to, I went to like, I think it's called porch.com and it's like porch, I think is like a, it's a, it's a marketplace where you can kind of get connected to people that can help you fix things around your house. You know, Zillow is obviously a rental and a home buying marketplace. And I went to all of those sites and looked at how they, you know, attracted me and then how they converted me through. And one of the things that I was so impressed that Zillow did, which I loved was, and it helped us kind of understand a problem that we were facing, but was that when you go on Zillow. So I, a good example of this is the house that I'm in right now. I bought it. I was on vacation with a, with my wife and we were at a friend's house. I was thinking to myself, wow, like I would love to have a house near them in Michigan. That'd be really nice to like, you know, get away on the weekend from Chicago. Um, and so I found a place on Zillow. I started and literally a second later, I get an SMS and it's like, hey, the realtor is ready to chat to you about like the home that you're interested in. And that's complete and utter BS. Like it, the realtor wasn't ready. Zillow calls you automatically. They then use a recorded and connected line and then they proactively connect you with the realtor. And the realtor knows that like when their phone number rings, like it's someone from Zillow and they need to answer it quickly. And if they don't answer it, it'll go to another 
um, house seller. And, um, and I, and it just, and literally like four weeks later, like we moved into our house, our, our side house on in wow. Michigan. And I was like, wow, like this process that like, I wasn't planning on moving just happened so fast. And I was like, but if it wasn't for the SMS, I wouldn't have like, I wouldn't have been in that mindset of like, we need a house in Michigan, right? To the point where I would have visited it so quickly. And after that SMS, I literally visited a house like 60 minutes later. It was wild how fast it was. Um, And so I think by just like going through those experiences of looking at other marketplaces and seeing how they convert people and that kind of learning that I had with Zillow helped us solve some of the challenges we have sometimes when we send a lead to a seller. So sometimes someone will come to G2 and they'll request a demo on our site to be connected to a Salesforce or a HubSpot. Um, and sometimes like the sales reps at those teams don't respond as quickly to the leads that come through G2 because it comes to them via an email if they don't have it integrated with their CRM. And if they're not looking at their emails and they're just looking at a, a lead list in Salesforce, they won't kind of be as up to date. And so it was kind of hurting our conversion rate. And so we then did more testing and kind of integrated telephony into, into the system and it helped dramatically by just directly calling the BDR sales line automatically for the person that was buying. So, so I'd say like, sorry, that's a really fucking long way to answer your question, but I would say it's like a combo of like looking at the data and really understanding the conversion from top to bottom and by bottom, I mean retention. Um, And then while you are doing that, like there will be some glaring things that you will just see when you actually get into the funnel. And so I think it's like a little bit of art and a little bit of science, to be honest. And then I think you just iterate from there. Yeah, absolutely. You said a couple of things uh, that I really liked in that as well. I think the one thing obviously was like with Zillow, uh, that experience, like that really fast uh, process. I think you worked, did you work with Mark Roberg at... um, HubSpot at all, or did you overlap? I think we recently, we overlapped a bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we recently interviewed him, and, and one of the core metrics like he found as well, like through his experience with all uh, from the sales perspective, is really that initial time to contact. Like once a customer's mm. like made that uh, thing, like the exponential returns, like as the time as it yeah. decays, like you've just almost lost that after an hour. So like having that immediacy and having that content like is so huge uh, for conversion. Uh, the other thing I thought you were going to say though on Zillow was uh, one of the things and I was thinking in my mind afterwards, like similarly to you is you don't buy a house every day and mm. you don't buy software every day. So I think like that's also one of the things like how do you stay top of mind in your customers? How can you build a frequency to create a habit around your product? And I think Zillow does a really good thing with Zestimate or whatever mm. they call it, where they yeah, give yeah. it and you're keeping a fresh new one. Like how do you view this at um G2, like what are some of the things you're trying to do to stay relevant and up to date? And I guess it's maybe slightly different because you buy uh, software a little bit more frequently, but still not to the same thing where it's like a daily habit or like a weekly or monthly even sometimes. Yeah, I'd say there's like probably two parts of that. So the first thing that I noticed when I joined G2 and I was looking at our funnel, I, I did, you know, what any kind of like average marketer does. They kind of do like a bit of a content mapping exercise, right? Where I look at like what is what are the different stages of the buyer's journey and you know, how does our website, our content, our product offer solutions to those things. And what I found was that, um, you know, we were clearly like the number one when it came to like, when you knew what you wanted, if you knew you needed CRM software, we were number one there, our CRM category ranked number one. And then when you then, you would then go from there and learn about Salesforce and HubSpot and all of the other CRMs out there. Um, And what I realized was that like, 
and I kind of knew this in, intuitively, but I think once I dug into the numbers, I, it, was, it showed me much more is that, you know, for every person that knows they need CRM software, like there's 50x the number of people that, that have the pr- problems that CRM software can solve, but their search term, they're not in that journey yet where they realize they need CRM software, right? So they may be searching for things like, you know, um, sales territory planning or like, um, you know, sales email templates, those sorts of things, right? They indicate like they are, they, they're indicating the need and they're a salesperson. Um, and so really quickly, I built a pretty big content team to address the top of the funnel at G2. And, and that's been a big part of what helped us go from, you know, our blog traffic was, was, oh gosh, it was less than, I think it was less than like 50,000 visitors a month. And now our blog itself drives, you know, two and a half million visitors a month. So, wow. uh, and then we push people from that blog when they're learning about like, you know, sales territory management into the different CRM tools that can help them plan their sales territories, right? So, so content was a big one as, as part of like pulling them in when they don't realize they need software. Cause yeah, you're right. The other part of it, which is something that we've done recently and it wasn't, we only did it really, we, 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 we didn't only just do it recently because we thought of the idea. Now we, we did it recently because we had some technological challenges. Um, but essentially now we, we are doing a good, a better job at, so if you've ever left a review on G2, now you'll get, you know, a, a weekly or a monthly email that says, Hey, you know, you've left X many reviews on G2. This is the number of buyers that you have helped, um, buy said software. Um, here are the discussions that people asked you. And, you know, so we're, we're basically like showing them the value of the content, the UGC that they've created on our site. And we see those emails, you know, convert exponentially better than our previous emails at driving the outcome that we want. And in that instance, the outcome is we want them to come back and update their review or leave a new review. Um, so by showing them the people that we're impacting, it's helped us. And to be honest, that kind of came from if like, I, I'm a big Google Maps user. And whenever I go somewhere, I always rate the place. Um, yeah. And I get a really slick email from Google once a month. And it says like, hey, Ryan, here's your timeline of all the places you went to. Um, and here are like, here are all the reviews you left and here are how many people you help. So again, just like stealing and copying what other great companies are doing. That's like my favorite thing to do in marketing is like stealing other people's ideas and, and applying them to our world, because I, I think that's just the quickest way to win. Yeah. I love that to answer that as well. It's not only like looking at your direct competitors, but really outside of your space. Yeah. And what are people doing? Well, I think. Julie Hogan from Drift uh, in their customer success team, what they do as well was like, I think they went to was like Marriott or Hilton or one of the big hotel mm. chains. And uh, they're obviously very big on service and services in a mm. one game. And they actually brought like people in from there uh, to help them educate the team on like what service means to them and like getting and like you say, stealing ideas from other I industries or other spaces. Yeah. Just to, to bring I went to, I went to the Cannes, the can um lions festival last year um in the south of france and um and you know that festival is predominantly for b2c marketers right and b2c ad agencies um but it was exactly what you were just talking about like i wanted to not be in my world with my people i wanted to be learning from you know amazing cmos like fernando machado who is does he runs he's a cmo at burger king and burger king all of the burger king companies um, and he just does, he, he is like the king of social media when it comes to like 
doing crazy edgy campaigns. I don't know if you remember that one where it was like go to a McDonald's and ask for a Whopper. And yeah. I think you were like you had to share that on social media and then you would get a free Whopper when you went to a Burger King restaurant. Um, and he just is like the king at that. And so I learned so much from these other just remarkable B2C marketers that I would have never have learned if I just looked at our competitors because our competitors aren't doing any of this stuff. No. Yeah, and I think like sometimes you just sort of get tunnel vision when you focus to, you know, on this specifically like sauce industry and uh, looking to what everyone else is doing and becoming copycats. And then I love just having like the fresh perspective. It's given me a good reminder to keep doing it as well because I think... Yeah, you know, and the last thing I'd probably say on like the retention front, because we talked a little bit about sort of that B2B team on my team and how they generate leads and MQLs and we look at sort of the lifetime value and we, we basically account like a dollar value to leads now based on what we know about how they will convert in the future. One of the things that I found, and we, I kind of learned this at HubSpot actually, was that, you know, back when I was at HubSpot, we were spending about, gosh, a quarter of a million dollars a month on Capterra, um, thinking that it was driving really good quality leads for our business. Um, and I think, I want to say we did this for about like a year. I'm embarrassed to say that now. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until we did a massive analysis of all of our leads and the lead sources that we actually realized what we thought we were getting. We thought we were getting a really good CPL and or a good, really good CPA. But ultimately, those leads were churning at a freaking dramatic rate. And so actually, the true CPA or the true CPL was horrendous. And so really quickly, we stopped doing any of our Capterra lead gen. And that was around the time that G2 was reaching out to me. And I was like, oh, I like that you guys don't go down this dirty lead game that Capterra does. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's like what you're saying as well, like trying to understand the LTV by channel and uh, like that really helps you sort of uh, understand where you want to be investing and doubling down on as well. Uh, Yeah, 100%. Nice. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting. I'm sure we could go on for the next hour as well, but uh, see we have on time. Uh, is there any sort of final uh, thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of or to keep up to date with what you're working on? No, I mean, if they're a SaaS marketer and they're listening, you know, I would say if you're not on G2, totally get on there, claim your page, respond to your reviews. It's um, I'd also say, you know, if you're in a company right now that's you know, struggling financially and you're considering having to potentially lay off employees. We released our G2 track product for free um, recently to help companies look at how they could reduce their software spend as a way to avoid reducing headcount spend. So again, if you go track.g2.com, you can use that free tool that I mentioned that helped us kind of find where we had overlapping technology that we didn't need and, um, and you can use that for free. Awesome. I think it's a great gesture as well. And it's uh, better get rid of software than humans. So yeah, (laughs) uh, Ryan, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much. And uh, wish you best of luck now going forward. Thanks so much, Andrew. You too. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.